HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. The pandemic is absolutely magnifying inequities and issues that we already were seeing in our food supply chain, but now they're really in great relief because of the scope of this crisis. So there is an opportunity here to understand that there were already systemic issues going on in the way that workers are treated and the way that the people of lower income are able to access food in general across the country. And there's so many really visionary policies being put forward in this moment of crisis and many different paths that we could take. So I think the pandemic gives us an opportunity to think through some policy solutions that could maybe address those systemic issues moving beyond the pandemic as well. Regulations surrounding essential businesses government relief efforts, and rallying cries to save independent restaurants have put food policy at the forefront of national discourse. COVID-19 has not only caused consumers to consider the cracks in our food supply chain, but led lawmakers to reckon with the value of food businesses big and small. This week, we're diving into the nuts and bolts of various policy initiatives, from federal bailouts to state-level lobbying efforts and innovative pilot programs. We'll explore the latest developments in food policy and evaluate the high stakes of passing reforms to support independent businesses and increase food access. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. To start us off, Kevin Chang Barnum reports a story about how federal loans have been distributed in the restaurant industry. In response to COVID-19, the U.S. Congress passed a $2 trillion stimulus package, which was signed into law in late March. $349 billion of those dollars were part of a federal loan program for small businesses called the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. Businesses who took part in the program could have their PPP loans forgiven if they followed certain guidelines, like using 75% of their funds to pay employees. Full disclosure, HRN received a PPP loan. 
The PPP ran out of its initial funds after 13 days. The money that the government put together to help businesses get through this crisis largely went to big business. It went to big restaurant chains and it went to other big businesses. The small restaurants, I mean, what happened was that the banks informed their big customers of how they could have access to these $10 million grants, and they all took them. That's Marian Nessel, author and professor emerita at New York University. Her work focuses on the intersection of food studies and public health. If you listened to Meet in 3 last week, you heard her on our segment about Tyson Foods. When the word got out that uh, chains like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse had been uh, given one of these big grants, uh, they turned it, you know, that one turned it back. And the Danny Myers Union Square Group turned the one that they got back. And a few others have turned it back, but a lot of others have kept them. In many industries, the PPP loans were limited to businesses with fewer than 500 employees. But for restaurants and hotels, companies were simply required to have fewer than 500 employees per location. Marion said one reason that the money tended to go to larger companies was... Because the mom-and-pop places don't have the bandwidth to apply for these things quickly enough to get in under it before the money runs out. So it's very unclear who's going to survive this and how they're going to survive. You know, I mean, if you want to be in mourning for the life you used to lead, one of the things you mourn for is restaurants, and particularly non-chain restaurants. The goal of the loans was to keep workers on the payroll. But with COVID-19, the risk of restaurant work seems higher than ever. And we're talking here about low-wage employees who are you know, in just incredible irony, are suddenly considered essential. And everybody is complaining that they can't get people to work for these ridiculously low wages. It's not just Congress that has been called out for catering to large companies. In April, the White House announced the formation of industry groups to advise the president during COVID-19. The group it created for the food and beverage industry was criticized as being mostly white, entirely male, and composed largely of executives from major corporations and celebrity chefs. Well, I mean, right now we have a government that's extremely industry-friendly and not particularly interested in small anything. Um, so the small businesses, the small restaurants, the small meat producers, the fruit and vegetable growers who are small or middle size are going to lose out on all of this. A second round of PPP funding began in late April. That extension offers $310 billion in additional loans. Since the initial rollout of the PPP, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has tightened restrictions on the loans multiple times. As of May 19th, not all the money in the second round of the Paycheck Protection Program has been claimed. After being overlooked by the federal government, independent restaurants have united for the first time in history to advocate for support. In our next story, Dylan Hoyer investigates the impact of these organizing efforts in New York State. The hospitality industry is at the center of debate about reopening plans, unemployment levels, and economic relief in the wake of COVID-19. 
So it's unsurprising that many hospitality professionals have stepped into roles as activists, philanthropists, and lobbyists. Meet Camilla Marcus, the owner of Westbourne, a cafe and wine bar in downtown Manhattan. More recently, she took on the title of political organizer as the founder of Roar, a coalition advocating for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Really, it was organic, I would say, really came together very quickly. And we put a call out to about 30 to 40 restaurant owner, independent restaurant owners here in New York to get on a call. We all jumped on the phone that evening. And by the next morning, our petition on change.org was put up. And we really started activating almost immediately. Tens of thousands of signatures later, Roar has made significant waves in the hospitality community and in the governor's office, advocating for a multifaceted plan to support independent restaurants in New York State. And I think, you know, the again, the fallacy of thinking, oh, okay, XYZ restaurant might close, but a new one will take its place. So without an industry-specific restructuring plan, things can look very dire. It's the difference between a recession and a depression. Roar's mission has evolved along with the effects of the pandemic. Initially, Camilla and her collaborators were primarily focused on providing cash assistance to hospitality workers out of a job and advocating for enhanced unemployment benefits. Today, they are directing attention to a five-point reopening and restructuring plan. Since launching, Roar has banded diverse people and projects together with the slogan, Too Small to Fail. You know, two-thirds of restaurants nationwide are owned independently. Here in New York, restaurants employ almost a million people. That's massive. That's incredible to think that we don't really have a strong force in government and a strong sway on policy. And I think that became very evident, as I said, almost immediately after COVID hit. And that's what we're fighting for, is to be recognized finally, um, really, I think, for the first time in a real way, how critical independent restaurants are you know, economically, most importantly for employment, and then again to the vibrancy, the safety, and the the culture of, of New York. Camilla's goal is to create a path that will allow restaurants to reopen and just as importantly to stay open. She sees a future with bleak prospects, but ultimately believes the problems at hand are solvable. So if we're looking at until we have a vaccine, social distancing is going to require likely a 50% suppression in sales, you know, like I said, for the coming year, you know, we look at a P&L and see all of the other costs are not only fixed, but potentially rising, like I said, PPE and protective gear and thinking about added liability and added measures that are going to be required to operate in this environment. That math just doesn't work. She is not in search of a silver bullet knowing that no single initiative will make up for a 50% loss. Nor will the government be able to cover these costs directly. Instead, Roar seeks to restructure restaurants' finances through various incentive programs. Payroll tax relief is one dimension of Roar's plan. We have the lowest revenue per employee than any other industry. So it shows you where we stand at that, um, that major economic driver. Like I said, the largest private employer. Um, unfortunately, payroll something like payroll taxes is keyed towards per employee. It's a measure that's levied per employee. Roar is advocating to suspend payroll tax for two years and then to have restaurants pay 1% of their gross sales rather than a percentage per employee. We're suggesting that for restaurants, it should be keyed towards sales so that we aren't penalized for employing more, which essentially is what happens. You pay more because you employ more, which 
seems a little bit backwards in my mind, um, particularly when you think about how critical restaurant jobs are for social mobility. There's almost no industries left. We're sort of the last frontier of real zero barrier to entry level jobs that have long-term career prospects. There's almost no industries that can offer that. And again, if that's something that we value, then that's something that we need to incentivize, not penalize. Weekly labor costs for restaurants average 40 to 45% of their total sales, with nearly a quarter of that amount going to payroll taxes. In 2008, restaurants were distributing less than 30% of their total sales to labor costs. For many restaurant owners like Camilla, the pandemic has brought to light long-standing issues. We've been way overly regulated and way overly taxed, in my opinion, for the value and what we contribute and invest back into our communities and for our people. I think it's about time that we peel back those layers and we look at every element and say, do we need that? Does it still serve us? Does it still make sense? Because a lot of those have really gotten out of control and are hangovers from prior eras that don't really make sense, that constrain these businesses that are critical, like I said, to the culture and the economy um, and to our people in a state like New York. Roar's plan is not merely a survival guide. Camilla views her work as a chance to help restaurants thrive for years to come. This is a wholesale reimagining and reevaluating 100%. Like I said, I think this is really a chance for, I keep calling it a reckoning. I really think it's a chance for us as the public and for lawmakers as our representatives to decide what's important to us as a society, as an economy, as people, as humans. And I think restaurants are at the top of that list on all of those aspects. We are pillars and lighthouses and have been for a very long time. We just have never been regarded, I think, as such. To learn more about Roar, visit RoarNewYork.org. We'll be right back with more Meet and Three. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries, 
They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. In our next story, we shift gears from restaurant relief programs to discuss other pressing food policy issues. McGill Webb explores the challenges facing the U.S. Postal Service and the impact on independent food businesses. President Trump is threatening to withhold a $10 billion line of credit that was approved by Congress in a coronavirus stimulus package unless the Postal Service quadruples what it charges to deliver packages. In the wake of COVID-19, online shopping has skyrocketed and the U.S. Postal Service has become more essential than ever to small businesses that ship their products directly to consumers. One such business is Burlap & Barrel, a single-origin spice company founded by Ori Zohar. We're a mail-based business in that we don't have any stores or any other locations, so anytime somebody orders spices, they get delivered through the mail. And right now, about half of our orders go through the Postal Service. It's really important to work with the Postal Service because they have low rates that are affordable to ship to even the most rural and faraway addresses across the country, including overseas military bases. And we end up spending a meaningful amount of money with them every single month to deliver these packages to our customers. Since the pandemic hit, Burlap and Barrel has seen an uptick in business, thanks to home cooks. So we're shipping more packages than we've ever shipped and handing them over to the mail carriers. But we can really see how the U.S. Postal Service is is at capacity and is not delivering things as quickly and with as much accuracy as we had seen in the past. If the USPS shut down, we'd have to rely on other shipping companies such as FedEx, UPS, or even Amazon. And what that would mean is that many of our customers that live further away in harder to reach addresses, we may not be able to provide service to them or cover their shipping or even afford delivery to them at all because the prices would be either much more expensive or delivery would simply not be an option. Over the past year, U.S. Postal Service mail volume has declined by at least 30%. However, mail volume has increased 70% since the pandemic. Burlap & Barrel is one of many food companies relying on USPS to get their products in the hands of consumers. A bailout for the U.S. Postal Service is not only a chance to keep people connected, but could be crucial in keeping independent businesses afloat. For our final segment, Kat Johnson explains recent developments in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. Until recently, the only thing that stood between SNAP recipients and the ability to order groceries online was four numbers. Virtual retailers or services like Instacart weren't able to accept EBT card PIN numbers through shopping portals. But now that's changing and faster than expected. To learn why, I turn to Leah Douglas, a writer at the Food and Environment Reporting Network. So before the pandemic started, there was a a small effort underway at USDA to um, bring SNAP processing capability online for select retailers. And this is something that um, food access and anti-hunger advocates had been working on for many, many years. How do we make uh, it possible for SNAP users to buy groceries online? 
As part of this pre-pandemic effort, a handful of retailers piloted an online purchasing program starting in 2017. A unique participant was Wright's Market in Opelika, Alabama. Its owner, Jimmy Wright, spoke to the United States Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry about how online ordering and delivery benefited his customers. Again, we're very pleased and honored to be a part of the uh, pilot program. Uh, You know, when people typically think of a food desert, they think of an urban area, Philadelphia, Chicago, or somewhere like that. Alabama, much like Arkansas, the challenges we have are in our rural areas. And unfortunately, are in areas that don't have the population density to support a full-size brick-and-mortar supermarket. So we believe using e-commerce and online delivery, we can reach into these areas and bring a full variety of products, especially fresh produce and fresh meat, to these customers that will not be accessible to them as they are today. But Wright's Market is just one independent grocer in one small town. When the pandemic began, this was not very widely adopted at all. And it quickly became clear that the conditions of the pandemic in which so many people were required to stay home and that revealed sort of an inequity in, in how food uh, could be accessed. In response, the USDA quickly added more states to the program. So now, as of mid-May, there are 15 states that are now in the pilot and another eight have been approved and are in the development and testing stage. While this will provide SNAP recipients with the option to shop online, it won't offer them many options on where they can shop. In most states, the only retailers included in the program are Amazon and Walmart. So this is a controversial aspect of this pilot program, for sure. Some advocates say that, that, that this program is, is another way to sort of shore up their power and make it more difficult for smaller retailers uh, to compete. There's also another barrier to access for SNAP recipients. Delivery fees are an important detail of this process because delivery fees are not included, uh, cannot be paid for with EBT benefits, and the USDA spells that out clearly on their website uh, for the pilot program. Advocates hope that the USDA will update their policies to let SNAP benefits cover delivery fees and expand the online purchasing pilot to include more small retailers. And obviously, right now, the stakes are high. SNAP recipients have to leave the house and potentially expose themselves to the coronavirus at a different rate than people who are able to shop for groceries at home. To address these concerns in the immediate future, some independent grocers are finding ways to offer a comparable service to online shopping. In doing so, they're helping keep shoppers safe. There's a process called click and collect that is being rolled out in some places, some retailers where SNAP users can, you know, shop online, build a shopping cart, place the order, and then go to the retailer and do a low contact uh, payment process with their EBT card on site. So that's a way to sort of mitigate. You don't have to go through the grocery store as sort of an in-between. To read more of Leah Douglas's coverage of SNAP and how policy will shape our food system in the weeks, months, and years to come, go to thefern.org. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Kevin Chang Barnum and McGill Webb. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. 
Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.